I find myself saying things I thought I would never ever say in the past. So one day, as an example, one day Iris Evans was over our house and uh, Colin and Iris, they were playing together. Colin has all these kind of play tools like a screwdriver and, and a drill and he has the saw and he sawed Iris's face. She didn't like that too much, um, surprise, surprise. And I tried not to laugh to myself as I had to tell him, Colin, we, we don't use the saw on our friends' faces. He's like, okay, Daddy, I'm sorry. He went and told Iris he was sorry, and eventually everything was okay. I mean, if you've ever looked after small children, maybe you've had to say just some kind of crazy things you just would have never even dreamed of. Uh, you know, like, we don't drill into people's ears, or why did you take all your clothes off? It happens often around our house. Um, I mean, Sophie and Matt, just think of all the fun things you're going to be able to tell Juliet. Now, I could imagine quite quickly how me telling Colin to not saw his friend's face for quickly to be like, oh, but what about those who aren't my friends? Can I saw their faces? Now, to be fair to Colin, he thinks everybody is his friend, so he probably wouldn't really think in that way. But uh, that's kind of like the little kid logic, is it? Like, how, how bad can I be and still get away with it and still be counted as good? What's the worst I can be and still be good? Really, that logic lacks the understanding of the command to begin with. Because me telling Colin to not use the saw on our friends' faces is basically me saying, don't use the saw on anyone's face. It's not a, a license to be like, oh, so that stranger over there, I can probably saw his face then. That's not, that's not the point. I'm telling him, just don't saw another human being. And it's exactly this kind of little kid logic that Jesus is addressing with the Sermon on the Mount, what we're calling the Jesus Manifesto. God had given the people of God laws, and these other laws were good, and they were helpful for the people of God. And there were ways to be most satisfied in life. There were ways to uh, love others well, the way to worship God. But over time, God's people tried to find loopholes and try to contort these good things into bad things. Religious people will always try and do that, by the way, trying to contort a good thing into a bad thing to be still seen as good. But because God loves us and wants to rescue us from our own little kid logic that kind of plays out in our lives, the Father sent the Son. And God's Son, speaking to us here, speaking to us this morning, is describing to us the world we want. He gives us a big, beautiful, massive vision. A world full of truth, a world full of generosity, a world full of love. So he's, he's this great, massive vision, but he's also, at the same time, holding a mirror up to ourselves, saying, are you like this? Are you truthful? Are you generous? Are you loving? And he's not that concerned first with our outward actions, but really what's going on inside. And so the three main areas that we just talked about um, in this particular section, in verses 33 to the end of the chapter, are truth, generosity, and love. And who wouldn't want a world full of truth, generosity, and love? And we all think the world could probably grow a bit more and be a bit more truthful, a bit more generous, a bit more loving. That's the kind of world we want for Juliet. That's the kind of world I want for Colin. Now, I think probably everyone here would agree that we can stand to grow a little bit in this. But why do you think the world isn't like this? Why do you suppose the world is not as truthful, generous, and loving? Surely it must be other people, right? It's not, it's not us. It's not people here. We're, we're going to church. We're the good people, right? It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite Seinfeld quotes that I use all the time. Uh, it's people. Oh, they're the worst. <laughs> it's always other people. But if everyone is pointing to everyone else, eventually some of those fingers are going to point to us. And probably some of those fingers that we're pointing out ought to be directed a bit more inward. Because we can all grow in truth, in generosity, and in love. And what Jesus is doing here is holding a mirror up to who we are, but then also at the same time gives us a vision 
of what our lives could look like, of what the world could look like. And so we're going to look at each, each of these. So let's first start with truth. Jesus starts here in verse 33, um, starts with a command. He said, you've heard it said long ago, don't break your oaths. So basically Jesus is saying, you remember that, that thing in the Old Testament where God said, hey, when you make a promise, keep that promise? Well, you guys aren't really doing that very well. So you know what, don't, don't even make promises anymore. There was an Old Testament command, which was good. It was basically don't use your words to manipulate others. And religious leaders eventually, as, as God's people kind of uh, progressed in at least in time, not necessarily in morality. Uh, they tried to make these laws that, was, that would, originally was to say, don't break your promises, uh, it basically contorted to say, well, what promises can I get away with breaking? What promises do I have to keep? If I swear by God, well, I probably have to keep that promise. If I swear by Jerusalem, oh, maybe that's kind of iffy. I can probably break it, maybe get away. If I swear towards Jerusalem, oh, well, you know, I probably don't really have to keep that promise. And, all, and there was codified. It was, this is, here's what you can break, here's what you can't break. So all these ways of promising people and basically legitimately getting away with it, which kind of undoes the whole point of using our words truthfully to begin with. So even though there was this hierarchy that religious people were trying to use, um, and remember this is a little bit of that little kid logic, trying to be as bad as possible and still be seen as good. And this really is an approach to life. If you're using words that way, it's an approach to life based on manipulation. If you want to do what you want, when you want, everybody and everything better get out of your way until your desires are completely fulfilled. And if the, your desires aren't completely fulfilled, it must be a problem with the world. And so what we use truth, we, instead of using that for truth, we use truth as a means to deception. The people working this out, who are working out these kind of codified ways of which laws to break, which laws not to break, the people who were working that out, those were the religious people. They were the best of the bunch, the people who were trying hardest to be good. And so Jesus says, well, if that's how you're going to use oaths, don't use them. It's not even the intent behind what I meant when I first said them. Now, understanding the context on these verses and intent of Jesus' teaching is important. Um, because what is he saying here? Is, is Jesus saying, therefore, uh, if you're a Christian, you're not allowed to take any kind of oath? You're not allowed to promise ever? Like, what exactly is going on? Well, we know later on in the Gospels, Jesus himself speaks under oath at his own trial. Paul swears by God. So there's, so Jesus is, is taking oaths and Paul is, is swearing by God. So like, what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is telling us to use our words, our promises in a way that isn't intent on manipulating others, but is intent on being truthful. He's also saying, don't put yourself in a position where you're going to have to break your promise. And interesting in that, he says, any other way to speak comes from the evil one. And the evil one is also called the father of lies. So whose direction are you following in your speech, Jesus or the evil one? They can both look really good on the outside, but what's going on inside, in the heart? It's like if you have a group of kids wanting to play a game. You have a ball with you, and you toss it in the middle, and they make up some kind of game that kids make up, and, these kind of, and all these rules are set, and the kids are doing it, and it's fine, and they're using the ball, and it's great. And then eventually some of the kids take the ball, and they're like, like chucking it really hard at some of the smaller kids, and some of the smaller kids are getting hurt. What are you going to do if you're watching those kids? Well, you take the ball away. Sorry, this ball was meant for something good, but now you're, using it, you're abusing it for something evil. So I'm taking the ball away. Find another way how to play. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He says, I want you to do be truthful. So I said, honor your promises. You can't do that? Well, fine. Don't promise anybody. Just say yes. Just say no. 
So very religious people can use truth to deceive, and people who aren't religious can do that as well. But Jesus here is talking to the crowds who are following him. He is talking to the people who are showing up at church on Sunday mornings. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, you know, I'm generally a truthful person. I don't try and break promises really all that much. But I think really all of us try and throw words around so we look better. I mean, how do we use, word, how do we use the truth to manipulate things and to get things that we ought not to give otherwise? I mean, here's a really small, dumb example from my own life. My undergrad degree wasn't something that doesn't sound very smart, exercise and sports science. It's not very intellectually sounding. And a year after I graduated, they changed the name of the, of the course to Applied Physiology and Kinesiology. Now, that sounds smart. <laughs> applied Kinesiology, I, mean, I kind of maybe know what Kinesiology is, but Applied, it's like there's something really smart going on there. Now, I'm tempted to tell people that my degree was in Applied Physiology and Kinesiology. Just so people, have, no one really cares about it except for me. People could care less. But I, I am not comfortable in who I am, who God's made me to be, and so I'm trying to present myself as better in who I am. By something as dumb as that. That's not being truthful. I mean, how, how many of us have used our work experience in ways that kind of might stretch the truth a bit? Or our CV, we maybe pad it out a little bit. People you know or like to name drop, oh yes, I've read that book, it's quite good. Or, um, oh yeah, that obscure singer, I know, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Or that film, oh yeah, it was French, right? Yeah, yeah, I know that one. I mean, we hate when pol politicians dodge straightforward questions on hard subjects, but if someone asks us, a straightforward question on a hard subject, we're going to dodge it as much as possible. Colin, did you take a biscuit? I'm watching TV. <laughs> Thanks for that info. Uh, did you take a biscuit? Silence. <laughs> Tell me yes or no. We all want to be just told yes or no in plain language. If you're a parent, can you really say you've never manipulated words to curb your kid's behavior? Does maybe really mean maybe? Maybe we can do that later. You're thinking, let's hope they forget about it. <laughs> or when you say to somebody, like, oh, yeah, let's hang out. Let's do dinner sometime. And you really are like, oh, I got out of that conversation. That was awkward. If you say, let's hang out, do it. Or don't say it. If we follow the roots of deceiving others, that comes from manipulation. And that comes from not getting what we think we want. That's an insecure place. That's an anxious place. And we may not use violence to oppress others and to get what we want, but we're okay with using words that way. Now, in Jesus' kingdom, deception gets transformed, and now we can have integrity. We can be freed from contorting those truth into lies back into truth. We're freed to move from lies to truth. So that's truthfulness. Jesus next talks about generosity in verses 38 through 42. He starts with another good Old Testament law, which might sound a bit harsh to us, but we'll get into this for a second. He says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, now that might sound harsh, like plucking someone's eye out, plucking someone's tooth out. So what, what was the deal here? Where, what was going on was, first, it was a way to limit violence. If I got into a fight with you and you maimed me, I would want to kill you. I wouldn't have to just maim you. I'd want you to die or cut your head off or something like that. But Revenge always asks for something more than was done to us. They throw into that kind of like uh, generations of like family clans that work against each other and violence just escalates and there's no limit to it. So this law was a way to limit it. So basically, if you take my tooth out, somehow maybe you punch me in the face and my tooth comes out, the only kind of thing I can do is ask for your tooth to be removed and then it's done and it's over and we move on. It's a way to limit that. 
It was also just in that it equalized different classes of people. So if I was a very poor person and you were a very rich person and I stepped on your foot, you could come at me with everything that you had. And I just had to kind of, okay, fine, like throw me in prison or whatever the thing might be. But if the situation was reversed, I had no kind of just way of coming at you. What this law was basically said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth across everything. So if I wronged you in some way, then you can come after me and vice versa. So this kind of equalized kind of class systems. So, but slowly though, this rule that should have limited violence and that should have kind of equalized society, slowly this rule changed and became a way for people to squeeze as much as possible they could out of others. The others that they thought had done them wrong. The question became, what am I entitled to? Instead of, well, how can I be generous? Jesus continues with this theme in, uh, in verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, so most people are right-handed, a slack with in the right cheek, that's a backhand. It's a public backhand. It's like in Victorian times, I'd be like, we would start dueling or something. All right, get the pistols out. We're going to duel. That public backhand was humiliation in front of everybody. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And speaking of suing, in the next verse, Jesus says, if they do sue you, give them whatever you ask. And even your shirt as kind of a deposit on money. And then if, even give them the coat on your back. Which a coat for an Israelite was like an inalienable right. It was out without the coat, you're naked, which is a bit depressing and humiliating. Um, you don't have a bed anymore. You don't have a pillow anymore. It was kind of like the only thing you could really claim as yours, as a material right. I mean, who acts this way? Who would want to give their coat away? And the time that Jesus is speaking, the Jews were currently occupied by the Romans. So these Romans were a, an outside force. In some ways, they were hostile towards the Jews, especially in demanding taxes from them. And the Romans could force anyone into labor. So that's why it says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, the audience would totally understand that's the Romans forcing me, a Jewish person, to go a mile with them, to march a mile with them, force them to labor. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So, oh yeah, do you need me to go another mile? That's crazy. How... Can you imagine having this kind of outside force? You'd have this probably pent-up anger. You'd have this hostility towards them, and yet you're supposed to live in a way that's very generous to them. Sounds like lunacy. And lastly, Jesus says, kind of without any restrictions, give to people who ask. Give to people who want to borrow from you. Now, it's important to set the context and intent again here because people have used these verses to prove why there like, should be no police force because that's resisting evil. Or they said why we should all literally go broke for other people, giving to anyone who asks. Or why we shouldn't stand up for justice for others, which I think is all contorting what Jesus is trying to say here. Because first off, these verses are directed against personal revenge. Someone who comes against you. When someone humiliates us, we want to humiliate them. And that's what Jesus is confronting, that response in our hearts. And elsewhere, Jesus encourages us to stand up for justice for others and against unjust systems. And so that's not the context here. The context here is our heart when someone comes against you. And the word resist um, that, that Jesus has in, in verse 39 has a bit of a legal sense to it. So I think really what Jesus is saying is as a Christian, don't stand on your own legal claims. Don't claim your rights above others. Seek others before yourself, even when you have a chance to claim rights for yourself. It's the same with giving in, in verse 42. We aren't obligated to always give to whoever asks us all the time. And that would often be very bad for the giver and the person who's receiving. But are we prone to give more to others than we actually have? 
Do you have that heart where you would just love to be able to actually go broke for other people? People who don't deserve it? When we pass people on the street, do we take maybe like a small step away? If we do, it's because our hearts have already walked in the other direction. Wouldn't it be wonderful to really have the kind of heart that wants to go above and beyond in generosity towards others? I would love a heart like that. And that's the context here. The context here is the heart behind the law. Don't be violent to each other. Don't seek your will first. Be generous. Entitlement is concerned about this question. What can I get for myself? The world is your oyster, so do with it what you want. You, by reason of existing, are entitled to whatever you desire. And again, if those desires are frustrated, it's because of a problem with the world. Only a prideful, entitled person can really be humiliated. Humiliation doesn't come to any other kind of person. Because a prideful person has themselves on a pedestal. And because of that, they actually really are the most insecure, although they come across as the least insecure. An insecure person will always be seeking to get themselves filled up and puffed up somehow. And that leads to entitlement. But let me tell you about entitlement. Feeling entitled to something, whether real or not, whether perceived or real, Feeling entitled is a bottomless pit because you will never have enough to ultimately feel satisfied. You will never fill the need you have. It will always ask for more. You will never be secure and you will always be chasing after it. And a symptom of entitlement is moaning. Now, I don't know if you have the pleasure of being a part of the Trollton Facebook group, of which I am a part of. Uh, it has been a bit infamous for its moaning. Uh, the MEN has basically written stories lifted directly word for word in some ways from this Facebook group. And here's what happens. People moan about not being vegan. People moan about being too vegan. People moan about the need for censorship. People moan about the evils of censorship. People moan about how this business is horrible and all these people deserve to be shoved off a cliff. And then people at the same time say, this business is amazing. This is, this is the best thing that has ever happened to Charlton. And that's all in 30 minutes. Only the entitled have the thought to moan to begin with. You know who's really good at moaning? Christian groups. We moan about everything. It makes us feel better about ourselves, right? We, we're the righteous ones. We can make fun of them. Maybe you don't think you're entitled, but if you're slow to admit you're wrong, that's entitlement. Do you jump automatically to rationalize why you did what you did? That's prideful, isn't it? That's insecurity. All of that is about seeking our own. It's not about seeking the good of others. We're not free to seek the good of others if we live that way. And yet, we all want a world that's generous. Don't you see how it cuts both ways? Because a generous world has to be a world full of generous people. And generous even to those who we don't think deserve it. We want people to be generous to us when we don't deserve it. I want Juliet and Colin to live in a world that's generous towards them. And I want them to live in generous kind of ways. In Jesus' kingdom, our entitlement gets transformed. And now we actually can be generous. We can move from entitlement to generosity. So we've seen the movement from lies to truth, um, from entitlement to generosity, and lastly, we come upon love in verses 30, 43 to the end. Jesus quotes what must have been a popular saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I've heard that first part a bit, love your neighbor, sounds very Christian-like. I have not heard that second part very much, hate your enemy. What is this from? What, what's the deal going on here? Well, love your neighbor is the reason why it's familiar is because it comes from the Ten Commandments and lots of other places in Scripture. But hate your enemy, 
God actually never said that. And the situation, again, is that people are using God's good commands, but sorting them out for their own means. When God said to love your neighbor, eventually this became love people like you, not the outsiders. And there was even a, man, a monastic community before uh, Jesus came on the scene where their little saying was, love the brothers, hate the outsider. This is the classic, don't saw our friends' faces. So you're telling me I can saw other people's faces? God has commanded his people to love others. But God's people contorted this to legitimize hate. They institutionalized hate within the system that God created. Now, loving people who are like us, who are our friends, that makes sense. I mean, that's hard enough as it is. But we can understand that. Everyone strives to do that. But hating enemies, I mean, we like the idea of that. Uh, but that's a little bit harder. So what does it mean to love enemies when it's really just so easy to be friends, just friends of people we agree with. It's hard enough to be friends with people who don't agree with us. Who really strives to love enemies? And if we have an enemy, we think probably we're really righteous if we just ignore them, like, oh, it didn't get to me. We think that's great. Jesus goes further. He says, no, you need to love them. Now, Jesus' time had clear enemies, the Romans, this outside occupying hostile force, taxing them, demanding a lot from them. And the Romans might have been in Manchester years ago, but they have long since gone, so we don't have that same kind of dynamic going on. But maybe you have a difficult work colleague or a neighbor that sometimes it just feels like they go out of their way to make your life miserable. But I think, as it happens in most of our lives, the people who really feel like enemies are people who are close to us. There are times when members of our own families act like enemies. Parents and children can relate to each other as enemies. Husbands and wives can live as enemies together. I mean, I've been around the church long enough to see in situations where uh, f uh, families have been together 20 years and looks really good and they have a, a very compliant and well-behaved family and then you get into a pastoral situation, you find out the last 10 years they've been living in separate rooms, now even talking to each other as husband and wife. Sometimes we wound people deeply through the things we do or say and we don't take time to repair that wound. And over time, it festers, it gets worse. And more wounds are added, and more wounds are added. And before we know it, we wake up next, the next morning to an enemy. It's not easy to love someone in that situation, is it? So who is your enemy? You might be living with them, working with them, living next door to them. We hate our enemies, but instead of feeling bad about that, which we should, we use that as another kind of fuel the fire, self-righteousness kind of thing. But they did this, and they always do that. They don't think about me this way, so I can therefore not think about them that way. Enemies inspire hate, and hate is never a good quality. Do we want a world with less hate? That means a world where we have to love our enemies. An upside-down world where people aren't seeking their own good, they're seeking the good of others. A love for enemies is a reflection of who God is. That's why Jesus goes back and says, if you do this, you may be the children of your Father in heaven. It's a reflection of who the Father is. And what would it look like to take a small step, to move just a little bit from hate to love? Maybe that means doing something nice out of the blue, a kind word, a nice, an act of service even. It would be including people in on an invitation you wouldn't normally include, maybe. But in Jesus' kingdom, hate gets transformed, and we can now be loving towards those who don't love us. We move from hate to love. Now, the world that's full of truth, generosity, and love, like, that all sounds really great. And, of course, we all want to live there. 
but we know in ourselves, we're not like that. We don't really measure up. The vision is great, but the mirror that Jesus is holding up, even just briefly, doesn't look so good. And our lives, really, our world is made up of, of fantasy on one side. I mean, we have devices in our pocket that can entertain us in any possible way we want, connect to us to any per possible person in the world at all times. We even sent a Tesla car into space. That's amazing. We're kind of living in a fantasy world. But at the same time, we also realize this world is actually worse than we thought. There are wars that rage on. There's human trafficking. There's violence, especially me as an American. Gun violence against children. This world is horror-filled. Maybe some of you have brought some of that horror that you've had this week with you this morning. And we realize, along with that, we aren't as truthful as we'd like to be. We're not as generous. We're not as loving. So is Jesus dangling a carrot out there that we can't reach? The last verse of this chapter says we ought to be perfect just as God is perfect. That's impossible. Is Jesus telling us to do something that will never possibly happen? How can he tell us to do that? We can try and be more truthful, but we know we'll never be perfect no matter how hard we try. We can try and be more generous instead of entitled, but we know we won't keep it up forever. We can try and be good and better at loving our enemies, but who can really keep all that up? That sounds impossible. So there is this world that we want out there that sounds great to live in, but the world we want is there, but where we find ourselves is a totally different spot, our reality. The world isn't perfect, but we aren't either, so we become desensitized. We're okay with the world as it is, really. I mean, we might give a little bit of lip service, so shouldn't it be better? Maybe we'll complain a little about it. But really, we're comfortable as we are. We don't want to change. We don't really want to be more loving, because that would be really hard for us. I'm not interested in that. I wonder if there are people here who want something more out of life, who aren't happy with their reality, as comfortable as it might be, but want something better. Who wants something better for this world, for themselves, and for future generations? Those are the people I want to speak to right now, because that's what Jesus is talking about. How do we get from our reality to the world we want? How does this even happen? How can we be perfect as the Father is perfect? The wonderful thing about Jesus is he never asks of us something that is impossible. It's impossible for us by ourselves, yes, but not impossible full stop. And God knows this. So instead of letting us languish in our lies, in our manipulation, in our entitlement, in our hate, God became a man, came to earth, and disrupted it all. Jesus was always truthful, always generous, always loving. People told lies about him, called him a rebel rouser. Religious leaders said he wasn't religious enough. They actually called him Satan. I've never been called that. Jesus was hit and spat upon, but did he retaliate? No, he turned the other cheek. If anyone ever had a reason to seek their own justice first at the expense of others, was it not him? It would have been righteous for him to do so. And he had the power to do so. He is God. And yet he offered the other cheek. Can you imagine the humiliation of your created beings spitting on you and mocking you? When your kids do that to you, doesn't some kind of hate well up? Magnify that by a million. And for these people, these enemies, these are the people Jesus gave his life for. He committed the greatest act of love on behalf of the worst offenders. We were his enemies, and yet he chose to sacrifice himself for us out of his love. And that's why Jesus' death matters, because Jesus' death 
bridges our here with Jesus' there that he's talking about. Jesus brought the world we want to us, knowing that we couldn't get there by ourselves. And that's what his teaching on his kingdom is all about. What does it mean that Jesus died for you? Maybe you've heard that before. Oh, Jesus died for you. So what? Well, it means that all of our brokenness, all of our emptiness gets put on him. All of our lies, all our feelings of entitlement, our manipulation, all of our hate, Jesus took that upon himself. And all of his goodness, his truthfulness, his generosity, his love is given to us. So he takes all of our bad and gives us all of his good. If Jesus has done that for you, now you know that this way of living that Jesus is talking about is a possibility. We aren't going to be always perfect, but now we're following perfection. It's not a pie-in-the-sky kind of ideal. That means we can follow truth, generosity, and love in a way that actually wasn't even possible before. And that's why the cross matters for those who are believers. Instead of being insecure and anxious of not getting what we ever think we need, through Jesus, we have everything that we will ever need and more. So we don't need to manipulate. We're actually free to be truthful, even if we don't get a good end of the bargain. Instead of being stuck in the endless loop of entitlement and pride, since we have been given so much, we can truly live generous lives, no matter who's on the right side or the wrong side. And instead of being slaves to hating our enemies, because Jesus has turned us from being enemies and bringing us into his family, we can respond in a similar way with supernatural love. If you already follow Jesus, the call is for us to go back to the cross, to confess where we don't measure up, and ask Jesus through his Holy Spirit to continue to work this out through us. If you don't follow Jesus yet, the call is the same, to go to the cross. Tell Jesus that you don't measure up, but you want to be part of this new kingdom. And if you're done being comfortable with the unjust, unjust kind of realities of this world, come to Jesus. He loves to bring more people into his kingdom. He loves to bring the joy that it is to follow him. And he is now building a people for himself who's going to reflect this world that he's talking about in truth, in generosity, and in love. And for all those who are in his kingdom, he continues to work in us, through us, by his Holy Spirit, through Christ, and only through Christ can we live in the world we really want and help build it for future generations, a truthful, generous, and loving world because of a truthful, generous, and loving person. Let's pray. Lord, as we bring our lives to you through prayer and we have just brought our lives to you through your word, we ask that you would change us. Don't keep us the same. Might be more comfortable to stay that way, but Lord, we know ultimately it's not a good thing. So though it is uncomfortable and it might pain us in some ways, Lord, would you draw us closer to yourself? Would you allow us to be more loving, more generous, more truthful? Lord, for those who know you, Lord, we, we ask that we would throw ourselves more upon you and on your cross, knowing that you are good and you lead us in good ways. And Lord, if there are people here who don't know you yet, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you show them the goodness of what it is to follow you? It's not easy, but it is good. We pray this in your name. Amen.